Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Most Christians live in no win, no win. It's better on paper, but if you see it just as like nowhere, but instead of where, when. And uh, he said that a lot of Christians, a lot of people for that matter, live as if they are kind of separated from history, detached from time, living in our own little little space. And uh, we fail to realize that the things that have come before us have led up to this moment, that we're not just living in this uh, vacuum of ideas or uh, vacuum of purpose, but especially as Christians, we see that God has a purpose that he's working out through history, and, and that, that really brings us into our message today. I've, I've taken a step back a little bit in time, and we've kind of arranged this a little bit different. I wanted to, to finish this study of David tonight with uh, talking about him as the father of legacy. I put a, a timeline up here on the screen and I don't know how big that is or how well you can see that, but uh, over here on the on your left would be the very beginning of his life. And uh, these are approximate dates. If you'd like to know where I got those, it's from Hill and Walton's survey of the Old Testament. And so you can't be exact on dates. The only date that we we pretty well have nailed down um, in terms of the life of David is. A.D. 931, and this is after David's gone, that's when the kingdom of Israel is split between the north and south under Rehoboam. And so if you work backwards a little bit, you can come to dates like this, that that David probably uh, died in A.D. 970, or excuse me, B.C. 970. Boy, that'd be a mess if we went to A.D. B.C. 970, and he was born in 1040. Now, you know that in the Old Testament, we, we count backwards in numbers, and it occurred to me that I should say this, that when, when they were experiencing their lives back then, they weren't counting backwards in numbers. You know what I mean by that? That that's something that is a later addition to help understand that. They normally probably didn't, didn't date it in terms of just like a numbered year that was detached from events. Most of the time in the Bible, they, they told time or they told history by who was the king, of which particular land, and they reigned this many years, and then and then they died, and then their son became king, and so forth. So if you do the math on this, you realize David's born uh, about 10, 1040 B.C., and uh, that he passes away 70 years later, 970 B.C., okay? And uh, we've talked about the end of his life with the uh, the army census, that's what I'm calling that, uh, the army census where he numbers the fighting men and uh, the other the other sin is there in in uh, i don 't know what color you would call that purple that 's what I call it um, is the adultery and the murder and then what we want to go back to is this middle portion here, and we want to talk about the royal promise that David receives so uh, we 're in second samuel seven and we'll we 'll take a look at that and the story of David is the story of the faithfulness of God to David and through David. That's important to keep in mind, that whenever God is faithful to us, he's also faithful through us, that he wants to express his faithfulness and his ability to keep promises. And the promise uh, came through a a line of promise, or excuse me, the, the uh, faithfulness of God was shown through the line of promise. 
One of the great verses in the New Testament comes from Paul's preaching, and we'll, we'll look at our passage in just a moment. But in Paul's preaching in Acts chapter 13 uh, in Pisidian Antioch, what is Paul's general approach to doing evangelistic ministry? How does he normally deal with that when he goes city to city? What does he do? He goes to the synagogue if there is one. If there's not one, like Philippi, there's no synagogue. But he found a group of God-fearers meeting down by the river. But the general approach that he takes is he goes to the synagogue. Why would why would David do that? Excuse me, Paul. Why would Paul do that? We're talking about David. Now we're back in, in Paul. What? Why would Paul uh, go to the synagogue? As That could be, that could be. Can you think of any other reasons why he might start at the synagogue? What's that? That's where the Jews are, okay? First to the Jews and also the Gentiles. What what would make that the common sense approach? Going to the, going to the synagogue first. Okay? He's, he's already got people who've grown up in some kind of a Sunday school system. They just don't yet know the fullness of the gospel. So he doesn't start from scratch. It's interesting. They, I heard somewhere that in, the, in some of the Pacific Islands that there were people they tried to evangelize. And when they went there, people had a hard time connecting with it until the Old Testament was taught to them first. And so you had to take time to teach the Old Testament, and then, and then you could come into the understanding of Jesus. Maybe it had to do with some kind of a... Uh, approach to ancestors, whereas maybe in our day, uh, you it's important to teach the Old Testament, but it's probably true, and maybe it's true because we have a lot of Old Testament and Bible knowledge already embedded in our Christian culture, that we can start with Jesus and preach from there. But, but uh, he approached that. I don't want to take a long time to unpack that, but he goes into the synagogue and he starts to, he and Barnabas are there and um, after they've read their scriptures and whatever, they invite Paul and Barnabas to come up and talk. And so Paul gets up and he talks and he does one of those things that you often see happen. Stephen did this and and others, uh, Peter did this and others in the book of Acts do this where they kind of they tell the whole story. They tell the whole Megillah, right? They, they're telling it from beginning to end. Like, this is what happens with Adam and Eve, and then, and this is the promise to Abraham, and then there's David, and Paul is working his way through all of this, and he comes to the life of David, and, and he's saying in there, and then, he, and he preaches through David to Jesus, and then he kind of steps back a little bit. And he shares this great verse. He gets to the, to preaching David and he says in Acts chapter 13 verse 26, excuse me, 36 and 37. Now when David had served God's purpose in his generation, he fell asleep and he was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not decay. And that's, uh, that's really interesting that Paul uh, would take that approach in preaching. He's he's telling them in the synagogue that David was just another part of the big story of God bringing redemption to fallen humanity, but he wasn't the main point. Sometimes we get our heroes really big, and in comparison, we don't let Jesus be as big as he ought to be. You know what I mean? And so they're thinking of David, and, and what Paul's trying to do is say that when David prophesied about... Um, not letting the Holy One see corruption in the grave, he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about 
his future descendant. And so the prophecies are being fulfilled in Jesus, the son of David, and he carries the promise on even after the generation of those uh, that he uses passes away. This is the legacy of promise, is that it's bigger than any one individual life. It's bigger than any series of lives, right? The promise of God is bigger than me and you. It's bigger than our lives. It's bigger than those who have gone before us. I often think of... uh, And sometimes this is like a good humility check in ministry. <laughs> Remember when God comes to Joshua and says, Moses, my servant is dead. Like All of a sudden, everybody's probably getting really nervous about what's going to happen next. And the point is that the plan of God goes on even without Moses. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than David. It's bigger than us. It's Jesus. The only It's not bigger than Jesus. Jesus is the point of all of this. And so we're talking uh, tonight about the legacy, that David is a father of legacy. We talked about how he was a son of legacy before. And the important part of that is that you'll remember that David was the descendant of some famous person. Anybody remember who? There's actually a few people in line there. What's probably the, the most famous person out of all of them? David? Who's, who's, his, who's his ancestor that's probably the most famous? Who? Boaz? Go back further, even further. Abraham, right? And then Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob, and I've got a picture here, as a matter of fact, and we'll take a look at this. Let's, we'll come back to that. All right. This is this is the line. I, I know that's super tiny, but uh, you can see Adam, Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham. We're skipping a few generations in here. Isaac, Jacob, and then who after Jacob? Judah, right? The remember when uh, when Jacob is going to going getting ready to die, he blesses his sons. What's what what does he say about Judah in that blessing? The, the scepter, I think I heard this, the scepter will not depart. What is a scepter? Sword? It's like, a, it's like a royal staff, is that fair? It's like what the king holds, the scepter. And it says, I'm the king. <laughs> and they're not even in any type of national identity at this point. And Jacob is saying to Judah... The scepter will remain in your tribe. So there's already the intention that there's going to be a king. And so, and then we have it kind of break down. There's that weird story about how the next generation comes about, remember? And then um, that leads to uh, Perez and then Hezron and Ram and then Boaz. And Boaz marries kind of a famous lady, Ruth, right? Ruth. And, and then we have Obed, who is uh, Ruth's. And Boaz's son, and then Obed has Jesse, and Jesse has David. Okay, that's kind of a. So, we talked about this before. I don't want to labor it too much, but David is a son of legacy. He's got legacy coming from his history, right? Like it's coming down, it's narrowed down, and one of the things that you'll see is this constant narrowing. There's big families here, but not every son is chosen. Just one son in that family is chosen to carry the promise. This was what was so big about Jacob um, fooling Isaac was that he was 
he was getting the blessing, which was the blessing through which the Messiah would come. I don't know if he would articulate it like that, or he would say it exactly like that. But there was some kind of a promise and a blessing that was to go to one of the sons in any family, and Jacob swindled his way into that, right? And then later on, when it was too sketchy to hang on to, he said to God, I need you to bless me. I need to know this thing is for real. And so he wrestled with God, remember? And so uh, he's blessed, and it goes through him to, to Judah, Perez, Hezron, Ram, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and then to David, and then Solomon, and then we skip a whole bunch of generations, finally to Jesus. We'll look at that in a moment. Coming back to this life here, we're right here in this uh, royal promise area. David's not yet um, sinned with Bathsheba. He's not yet counted the fighting troops. Uh, he's not yet gone into his exile. He starts to reign about 1010 B.C., and he reigns a certain portion of his nation for seven years. Remember, it's just the tribe of Judah. And then after a period of time, Saul's family is um, the power-seeking part, is, is, washed, is wiped out, and David becomes king of all of Israel. And so this first reign here uh, is just his reign, and then we have the expanded reign that includes all of Israel. And then after, later on, we see he comes back from his second exile. First exile is when Saul sends him away, or he flees from Saul. Saul would have loved for him to stay. Um, but then the second exile is when Absalom's after him, and then he resumes his reign after that. So this royal promise is what we want to look at. Let's look at chapter 7 here, and we'll, we'll read this. Okay. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, Second Samuel 7, and now we're in verse 2, uh, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of, the, uh, of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are, are you the one to build a house, uh, build me a house to dwell in? Verse 6, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Um, wherever I have moved... With all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of them, any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built a house for me of cedar, a house of cedar? Somebody else like to read? Anybody? Verse 8 and following. Thank you. Thank you. 
Okay, thank you. All right. Um, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up for you offspring to succeed you. I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I uh, took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words that uh, of this entire revelation. Let's pause there for a moment, and we'll come back to the rest of that in just a moment. If we're going to outline this, I would start with, I would start in the first place with peace, and then I would go to plan B, and then I would go to plan A, and then I would go to praise. That's how I'd break this chapter up if I were outlining it. Peace, plan B, I'll explain that in a minute, plan A, and in praise. This is the, the portions of this chapter. So looking at peace, we look at verse 1. Notice what it says there of, of David and the kingdom of Israel. After the king had settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him. Okay, so this is the describing the situation in Israel with David at the at the head of the throne. So what is what is this telling us about David's reign? I mean it's it's saying a few things, but what's one of the main things that this is saying? Okay. And why why is that important? Yeah. Yeah, it's the promised land and they're to go in and to take possession of the promised land and they it, when you get to the book of Judges, um, you hear this kind of rebuke that they failed. They failed. Many of the tribes failed to take possession of their allotment in the promised land, right? And God, because they did that, the people of the nations were thorns in their side. It was constantly pulling them back into idolatry. That's part of the problem why you see Canaanite religion so prevalent through Israel's history is I think a lot of it went back to a an original failure to stamp out the people. Now that that's hard for us to kind of digest in our now we we know the love of Christ and we're to love one another, but what God is trying to do is establish a holy nation where all of that can come about. Okay? So the love that he intends for us to have and the ceasing of war starts with Jesus, but the first thing he needs to do is establish a holy people through which the Messiah can come. And so the other the nations have to be expelled and pushed out, and, and nobody's done that. Saul was the first real king. There was another king in the book of Judges, but he kind of took it upon himself to be king. Uh, but Saul's really the first anointed king, but what does he spend most of his time doing? Chasing David down, protecting his own kingdom. He's not... He's not um, raiding the Negev. He's not pushing out the Philistines. He's not uh, pushing out the Canaanites and taking possession of the land that God's given him. He's concerned with his own kingdom and his own glory. So David comes along. He's not concerned about himself. He is concerned that God would be glorified. And so God gives him rest. And it's God that does it, but, but David's the willing vessel. So 
we know something about this, but this really breeds a little bit of something else that's taking place here. If you go back to chapter 6, I'm not going to have you turn there. You can look back there if you like, but um, you'll notice some things in chapter 6. One of the things that you see in chapter 6 is the moving of the ark to Jerusalem. You remember that? First, they tried to do it, and somebody got struck dead, and they put it away for a while, and they're like, we should try this again. Uh, because God's really blessing whoever, wherever the ark is. And so David says, let's bring, let's do it the right way this time. They bring up to Jerusalem. David dances before the Lord with all of his might. Their sacrifices. You can read all the details that are going on there. And they come into the city and David uh, dances in an indecent kind of way, according to Michael. And she looks down from her window and sees David dancing there in a way that she thinks is unbecoming of a king, and you remember what? <laughs> you sh- you're a king. You shouldn't be dancing like that. You, that's, that is not appropriate. That's not very regal. And David says, well, God made me king instead of your father. And tell me that's not a little bit harsh. That's biting. And he says, and I'll become even more undignified than this. So my dignity doesn't rest upon my position. It's in God. And then... Um, He says something to her, doesn't he? He says, you'll not, from this point forward, you'll not have any children. And and she doesn't. In fact, she doesn't have any kids. And one of the things that occurred to me is that because of her failure to be a worshiper, and also I think because of her ties to King Saul, I think this is one of the ways to keep Michael out of the lineage of the Messiah. Okay? It's just a thought. It's a speculation. But... They're moving the ark into Jerusalem in chapter 6. In uh, chapter 6, verse 17, it says he moved the ark, David moved the ark into the the tent he had pitched for it. That's such a strange thing to say if he's talking about the tabernacle. Okay, So I, I guess in my mind I was a little fuzzy on this, and as I was studying this today, I think it became a little more clear. The question then is where is, where is the tabernacle? If it's not in on Mount Zion. Where is it? Well, it tells us in First Chronicles chapter 16 in a parallel passage to this, it says that David took the ark to Jerusalem and put it in a tent, and he left Zadok the priest and the other guys to serve at the tabernacle in Gibeon, on, Mount, on the mountain in Gibeon. So the tabernacle and the ark are in separate places. So David's got it in some kind of a tent. Okay, That's First Chronicles 16, if you'd like to look into that. Michael is then excluded from the promise that we'll read about in just a moment. And this is all leading us into this chapter 7 that we're talking about where there is peace. And God's given David peace from his enemies on every side. He's given him rest. This is the promised land now possessed. And and now the nation can be settled and it can focus on serving God within his blessing. And now another thing that is associated with this, one of, what's one of the reasons why... Um, God set up his presence in a tabernacle, which is a tent. Why would he have done that? Okay, that, that's good. If you're, if you're just thinking in pure, purely practical terms from a wandering people, what's the benefit of a tent versus a building? It's tra- it's tra- yeah, you can transport it wherever you go. 
So they tore it down and they set it up and they tore it down and they set it up. When the cloud moved and the fire moved, they went with it, right? And so the tabernacle was portable. It's a portable place where God's presence could dwell. And now that they're settled into the land, thinking is beginning to change on this a little bit. I don't know about God's thinking, but at least human thinking is changing a little bit on this. So I mentioned plan B first uh, because it comes first in the story, but God has something else already in mind. (laughs) So that's the plan A, but we're talking about the plan B, and we're mentioning it first. And so um, David feels guilty, and he wants to do something to honor God. Look at verse 2 with me of chapter 7. Verse 2 says, um, David says to Nathan, the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. He feels a little guilty. And I I think he's probably doing some priority checks in his life and thinking, "Why why would I live in luxury and let the house of God be in ruins? And I don't know what the situation with the tabernacle is. I imagine at this point it's kind of tattered being old. I don't know if they kept up on it during the reign of Saul. Uh, it seems not. I don't know about how what happened to it after the death of Eli. Uh, it seemed like already there were bad things that were taking place and a spiritual neglect that was happening. And so it may be that the actual tabernacle, if it's on Gibeon, is in ruins. But David feels guilty about this, and he wants to do something to honor God. What's he want to do? He, want, he wants to build something nice for the ark of God to sit in. Oh, is, that a, is that a bad thing or a good thing? It's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, this this is a good thing, and I'm living in a nice place, and I have this ark out here in, in a tent, so priorities. Um, Nathan approves. Let me ask you a question here. Is Nathan, when he approves of this, is he speaking prophetically, or is he giving just a general blessing? And is there a difference? What's that? inquire of the Lord, it doesn't seem, or if he might have come up with a different answer. I think he's echoing something that Samuel has said to Saul. Remember when Saul first starts out, and this is in um, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 7, Samuel, Samuel says to Saul, uh, the Lord is with you. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. And so this seems to be a general stamp of approval on go forward and establish the kingdom with the power God's given you. He's anointed you in this, this position. Take your general liberty, and if there's specific direction, then God was going to give it. And I think there's a principle here. I don't want to spend a lot of time because we could get off track, but we have a general mandate about how to live life. You, you know, there's some things you don't need to pray about to find out if they're the right thing to do. We have general mandate about it. Like witnessing, you might ask the Lord if he wants you to witness to somebody, but probably you have a green light if you want to, don't you think? It's already fallen under the mandate, Matthew 28. If you want to go, if you see somebody and you feel like going to witness to them, you got freedom to do that unless the Lord says no for some reason. Okay, so we have general mandate. And that's true. 
That's true. There's different ways. But in terms of the general mandate, we've got it. We don't have to pray about whether we should pray or not. That's ridiculous. Like, Lord, should I pray more? Should I pray? Should I read my Bible? Should I go to church? I don't think you need to pray about those things. I think they're 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 there. They're kind of established in a general mandate. So we have like that, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for the Lord. And then we also need to be attentive to moments when he comes and interrupts that or guides us in a different direction, or he says, this this particular moment, this would be better. Okay, Paul, uh, when he was preaching the gospel, when he set out, the first place they went from Acts chapter 13, the first place they went was to um, Cyprus. Do you remember that? And do you know why they went to Cyprus? It's because Barnabas was from there, and he knew the territory. And they have a general mandate to go do ministry, and like, I know this area, let's go there. So they go. And the general approach that Paul takes is, I am called to preach the gospel of the nations. I'm going to go everywhere I can. And he does that. And then in some particular occasions, God says no. He tries to go to Ephesus, and the Holy Spirit said not there. Now is not the time. He would go later. He tries to go to Bithynia. No, now is not the time. And I think those two red lights, can we call them that, are really to provide an alley for a green light. Because if he goes this way, no, this way, no. It creates this kind of thoroughfare where he has to go ahead and he comes to Philippi. And it's all about timing and positioning. But Paul is following the general mandate God's given him to go and to do. I think in a similar way, David has a kind of mandate to do that. Like even when he's doing the Negev raids, when he's on the run from Saul, he's doing general purpose kind of things that kings should be doing. Okay, He doesn't need to ask permission to do that from the Lord, I don't think, because I think he's already, Israel already has the mandate to push the Canaanites out of the land. So in this particular case, he wants to do something for God, but the answer is no, because God has some specific reasons for that. Okay, so Nathan says, yes, you should, you should definitely do that. And uh, I think he was more blessing him more than speaking prophetically. Of course, being a prophet comes with a great responsibility, and I'm sure he had to eat a little crow when he came back and said, no, I was, I was wrong in my advice. Uh, God says no. Uh, I said yes, but God says no. Okay, that's, that's probably a hard pill to swallow. Um, we get some more insight into this whole thing from some other passages that David wants to build a house for the Lord. Um, in Second Chronicles chapter 6, when uh, I think this is Solomon retelling this, he's talking about how David wanted to do this. I think David's already passed on, but Solomon's talking about how his father David wanted to build a temple to put the ark in. And he says this in Second uh, Chronicles 6, 8, that the Lord told him, you did well to have it in your mind to build a temple for my name. In other words, the motivation's right but still, I'm not going to let you do this. So it's good that he had that motivation. That's true. And David, where we find out, was not allowed to build the um, temple for what reason? Does anybody remember? He's a man of blood. I thought um, recently somebody said something to me that it had never occurred to me before that maybe this is because of... Um, Uriah the Hittite, 
but actually that hasn't happened yet. So it's because he's a man of war. The Bible tells us that. He hasn't yet taken the life of, of course, God knows in advance that he will do that, but um, I don't know that that's the reason. It seems the reason given in Scripture, here's some passages on it, First Chronicles 28.3, 1 Kings 5.3, that you're a warrior and you've shed blood. Um, in contrast to that, what Solomon's name mean? Or allude to. Yeah, peace. Peace. He wasn't a man of war. I know he he got out all the bad blood. He took care of Joab, right? <laughs> Some of the other scoundrels that were the bane of David's existence. But in terms of war, he was a man of peace, and God gave him peace to his kingdom and prospered him in a big way. So David is a man of blood. Solomon's a man of peace. And then God was going to, here's some other, we'll come to this. God's going to make a house out of David instead. And Solomon was going to build a house for God. God, uh, God's action here precedes our actions, that he already has this plan in mind. So plan B is, David says, I want to build a, ta- uh, a temple for the ark. I want to build a temple for the Lord. Okay? That's in verses 2 and 3. Notice verses Four, uh, four through eight here. We'll talk about plan A. Plan A. Peace, plan B, now plan A. Notice uh, in this first, these first few verses, there's questions about plan B. And this is what the Lord says. Uh, poor Nathan now has to go back and tell David he's spoken on his own. Nathan goes home, probably feeling pretty good about himself. David's going to going to do a very good thing spiritually. It's going to be good for the nation to have a temple. And then um, God interrupts him at night and says, you misspoke. Uh, I'm not going to have him do that. But I want you to go back and tell him this. And it kind of softens the blow a little bit. Verse 5, it doesn't tell us why here. Uh, Remember, in, in the Samuel passages, we're getting the first telling. In the Chronicle passages, we're getting the retelling with commentary. Whoever's written First and Second Chronicles, they tell a little bit more detail most of the time about what's going on, some of the things that are happening behind the scenes. It's like commentary along with the events that have happened. And so Chronicles gives a little bit more. Um, so the question in verse 5, notice uh, the question there. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Not And, and notice there, there's something subtle that's happening. This is what the Lord says. Okay, what was what was the blessing that Nathan gave? Who who said that? Nathan. Okay, so here there's a contrast. This is what the Lord says. This is different. The Lord says this, um, and he 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 asks the question in verse five. What's the first question there? Are are you the one? To build me a house to dwell in. Are you supposed to do that? Are you the one to do that? And, and this was a good lesson too for us is that there are some things that we're called to do and there may be some other things that God is not necessarily calling us to. And, and it is important to be sensitive to that. We do have a general um, mandate to do things. But there are some things that we take upon ourselves that may not be in the purposes of God. And this is one of those examples where 
uh, I think most of the time it would be a green light, but this is a red light. And, and he says, are you the one to do this? Notice verse 6 through 8, another kind of question that comes up. This is all lumped together. We'll just read it, read it all. I have, not, um, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with the tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, why have you not built a house of cedar? Okay, look at this. This is the next question. Does God dwell in houses? Okay, that's, a, that's an important question. They're going to build a temple. The temple served a function in the plan of God. But did that really contain him? Okay, even when they, they dedicate the temple in First um, Kings chapter 7 and 8, when Solomon finishes the temple and dedicates it, he says right there, the Lord does not dwell in temples made by hands. He can't fit it. The whole earth can't contain him. And remember when Stephen preaches, Stephen being a Hellenistic Jew wasn't as attached to the temple concept as those who lived in Jerusalem. And so when he comes and he preaches, he said, and a lot of people saw him as attacking the temple, they got really mad at him. Mad enough to, they gnashed on him with their teeth, the Bible says, and they stoned him to death. And one of the things he said was, God does not dwell in temples made with human hands. And so it's a, what's that? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it did. I think it, in a way, became a weird idol. That it's supposed to be a place where you go to see God, and instead it becomes a God. But that that's true of almost anything. The blessings of God that he gives us, and even the formats that we use. And people make idols out of all kinds of things. And the enemy is so tricky that he can trick us into using the things closest to God. I think of how people, some people worship angels. Angels are attendants to God, and they're good. People worship that, but sadly. Do I dwell in houses? And then uh, I think a question that I would just ask us tonight here is, what can go wrong with a temple concept? And we've already started to answer it. Is um, we want to build a house for God because he needs some kind of shelter. That's the wrong concept. If David's thinking, I'm dwelling in a nice house, the rain stays off me, it's not a tent, um, what am I doing for God? See, the the way the ancient world viewed their temples was that it was the house where their gods lived. They lived inside of them. And what, what the problem with that in um, Christian theology, or if you want to go back further, Old Testament theology is that God is everywhere present, and he can't be contained in a temple. So that's a real problem. It's not as if the elements are affecting him or whatever. And so if David's got that in mind, it's the wrong kind of idea. A temple is a place of, of national identity and coming together to worship together. There's nothing wrong with that. Having a church where we can come together and worship, nothing wrong with that. But this is not where God lives. Come on, right? He lives in us. And so that's, a, I think, a fault with the whole temple concept. Um, and so I understand this to mean not that a house shouldn't be built, because it will be, and I think it's mandated by God that it was, but, but that it isn't 
because God needs shelter. He doesn't need shelter. So um, here's some statements in verses 9 through 11 about God's faithfulness. Look at what it says in verse 9 and following. It says, I've been with you. Um, I'll tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I want to go back to verse 8 there. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people. Um, Notice here it says the Lord Almighty. Prior to that, in verse 5, what does it say about the Lord? Just verse 5. What does it say there? This is what just the Lord says. That's not that he's any lesser, but it's interesting that in verse 8, it says this is what... The Lord Almighty, I think, Lydia, you might have the KJV there. Lord of hosts, verse 8, is that right? Okay, Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, I think is the, the Hebrew that's there. And the point that I would want to make here is that any time uh, Lord Almighty or Lord of hosts is used, it's often used when remembering or promising the miraculous. Lord Almighty, okay? Why Why would that be? Why would Lord Almighty be attached with remembering or promising the miraculous? Yeah. Yeah, and why, why Almighty? Why would that be so important to that? Say, say that one more time. Okay. Yeah. Omnipotence is just a Latin form of almighty. It's the same thing. It's that when you're promising or you're reflecting back upon the miraculous, when you say almighty, you're recognizing that he has all power. Okay, So that you're giving credit where credit is due when you think about the past. When you look to the future, you're promoting faith to believe that what he promised is true because he's mighty enough to do it. Okay, so Almighty is important in this as he reflects back because he's both, uh, Nathan, as he's giving this prophecy, is both reflecting back on what God's done and he's saying what God has said to say, which is, this is what I've done. And he's getting ready to tell something else about what he'll do. So God states his past faithfulness in verses 8 through 9. Look at what those verses say. Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture. This is very personal. Okay, first the first part's very personal. I took you, David, from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. Do you see that in one sense this is really a graduation into a similar kind of work? When he's pasturing sheep, he's learning principles to pasture people. Is that all right to say? He's learning how to be a shepherd. And so I've taken you from the kid that nobody called in from the sheep the sheepfold to the throne. Okay, I've done that. And then I have been with you wherever you've gone, which is everywhere. You know, who's saying I've been everywhere, man? David has been everywhere. Right? <laughs> Johnny Cash, right? Uh, he's been everywhere. Uh, I've... I've cut off all of your enemies from before you. I've given you victory over your enemies. And now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. Okay. Do you know, apart from Jesus, I think David's mentioned more in the Bible than anyone else. His name's 
His name's great. And wherever Jesus is preached, David is memorialized because of his association in the Old Testament with being the father of David, but also even in the title of Christ, David gets mentioned, doesn't he? Blind Bartimaeus on the road, uh, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, it was a it was the hope of um, Israel that had been oppressed, that the, a son of David would come and be their deliverer. So wherever the gospel is preached, David is mentioned. And we name, we name our boys David, don't we? It's because of this, this great man. And this, is be, this has been prophesied to David that I will make your name great. And we'll come to a final verse in just a moment, but... Um, he will make his name great. And it's kind of this, this thing of by association, if you get associated with Jesus, there is, there is exaltation that goes along with that. If we humble ourselves before him, he exalts us. And think about the uh, woman who went and poured the anointing oil, the perfume on Jesus' feet. And remember, somebody was critical of that. And Jesus says, don't criticize. Wherever the gospel is preached, it will be a memorial to what she's done. That's right. That's the that's the converse of that is that if you humble yourself you'll be exalted, if you exalt yourself you'll be humbled. So let's choose to humble ourselves before the Lord and if we're on his side there is exaltation that goes along with that. Okay, and not in the way that we're exalted above God, but we're lifted up with him as he as we lift up his name. Okay, so God um shows faithfulness to Israel and to David. He says, "I will I will make your name great." And then he says, and I will provide a place for my people. So now this isn't just about David. There's a promise now also for the people of Israel, God's people. And I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since. And the time I appointed, uh, ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel, I will also give you rest from all of your enemies. Okay, so now he's made a promise. Look at those the words of those promises. Let me ask you a question about that. With this kind of promise, what what are the the promises here that he's making to the people? Just quickly some general things here. This would be verse 10 through 11. To have their own land, okay, there's one. Peace, not be disturbed. Okay, and that will include wicked people will not oppress you anymore. Um, rest from the enemies, that really sums it up, doesn't it? Make them a house. Okay, that's coming. I'm thinking here uh, of asking, it, did this... Is this absolute? Is this unconditional, or was it conditional? Maybe another way to ask that is, he said, from now on, this will they will not be oppressed by other enemies. They will not be disturbed. Did that was that true of Israel for a little while? Okay. So then, if that's not the case, then why? Why were they disturbed if this is the promise that's been made? How can we reconcile those two things? Okay. It's conditional. 
And I think it's both yes and no. I think it's both conditional and unconditional. I think God will show this promise true in the end. Everybody who is walking in right relationship with the Messiah will experience this kind of blessedness. Okay, But in the meantime, God will have a covenant people. The question is, will in, will people as individuals be a part of that? He will have a people. Will we be a part of it? He will show himself strong on behalf of his nation. Will the Jeremiah generation be a part of it? You see where I'm going with that? Is that he will have a people that he'll show this faithfulness to, but some disqualify themselves by living in unbelief or habitual sin or idolatry, whatever uh, area you would want to put that to, they they don't get to be recipients of that blessing. And so I would say it's both conditional and God will fulfill the promise, but to whom? Will everyone experience the fulfillment of that promise? That's the question. So he states his faithfulness. God promises faithfulness to his people. Um, and then... In verses 11b through 17, he talks about here um, plan A, statements about plan A. He says um, in verse 11b, there's a paragraph break. That's why I did that weird thing with 11b here. Notice, uh, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Establish a house out of you. What... what uh, what can the word house mean? Okay. What does house mean? Okay, family line. That's good. What else? A nation? Okay. Let's call that the family line just to be to be simple. The family line of Jacob. Okay. What else can a house? I mean, I'm just thinking really basic here place to live in, right? Okay. And look, he uses it in both ways in this passage. In 11, um, he's talking about here 11b, um, and, and if you want to know the, the Hebrew word, it's bayit, bayit, B-A-Y-I-T, bayit, how we might spell it in English. Um, it can be a place to live in verse 5. Or it can be a family in verse 11b. Back in verse 5, it uses it as a place. I want to build a house for God. And God says, I'll not let you build a house for me. House structure. I will not let you do that. But I will build a house, family, out of you. So he changes. He uses the same word. It's it's like a, a double meaning kind of thing. It's a play on words. He uses that to switch things up for David. He says, I'm going to build a house out of you. Um from home he goes to lineage. And I will raise up your offspring. Notice it says there, when your days are over, verse 12, and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son and when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. 
just like you to notice some things here about this. When he, he's talking about uh, offspring uh, here, I will, I will raise up your offspring or seed. Let's take a look at this next uh, slide here. This word for offspring is consistent through, um, through Scripture, and it starts in Genesis 3, 14, and 15. Who, who's in that conversation? Genesis 3. I mean, we're way early, so Adam and Eve, the serpent, and God, okay? This is called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, the first preaching of the gospel. And in that situation, uh, the promise is that there will be enmity or hostility between your seed and the serpent's seed, okay? The serpent will bite the heel of your offspring, your seed, okay? But ultimately, the um, you will crush the serpent's head, that your offspring will crush the serpent's head. And so there's this anticipation. The word offspring comes up. But then it comes up again to Noah. This is the Noahic covenant. I will establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. The very same word. You might have seed there. It's the same word, okay? Um, so then to Abraham, through your offspring, through your offspring will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Okay. Genesis twenty two eighteen. Isaac, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Genesis twenty six twenty four. To Jacob, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Genesis twenty eight fourteen. And this is interesting because when Paul comes along in Galatians, he says, uh, when it talks about Abraham and his offspring, he's talking about n- not many but one. Okay, this is what's really interesting here is that uh, the word offspring or seed, both of them are collective singulars. What's that mean? It means we use the same word for plural and singular. Okay, like deer, right? Deer is a good example of that. Seed, uh, offspring, it's of many and one. I think this is an intentional. Um, device intended to get them looking forward. And so as they look forward, they're looking for offspring. And so they would see it both as the immediate next generation, which I think Eve may have in some ways seen like Cain as the fulfillment of that, but he wasn't. And neither is Abel and neither is Seth. It's going to go on down the line. And to each generation, to Noah, as he comes off the the ark, and they're preparing, and God says to him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, the, the same thing that is said to Adam and Eve, now saying to Noah and to Abraham, your offspring. You see the covenant moving along. This word offspring is a covenant word. We just have about five more minutes. I brought, I brought uh, this Russian nesting doll here. Anybody know what that's called in Russian? Petrushka doll. And I hope you won't be offended by this example, but... Um, one of the things that happens in Scripture is the idea of corporate solidarity. In the many, the one. Okay, And in the one, the many. It goes both ways. And so when it talks about offspring, if you look at the list that's mentioned here, you get an idea that what's being promised to David is both something for Solomon and his lineage, but all kings, but it's ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah. Like when it says for his, I'm trying to think of, uh, when he does wrong, I will punish him. Is that talking about Jesus? No, Jesus didn't do wrong. He was he was without sin, right? 
But the other sons, <laughs> all the other kings in the line of David, they weren't. They weren't models for good behavior, right? And so there's the idea that it's talking about the next generation, but also there's more, right? And and here's another way of looking at this. We look at the mountain over here. I know this is a tired example, and I've used it a lot. But when we look at that mountain over there, we're not seeing one mountain. We're seeing many mountains. We're seeing a whole series, right? But we see the face of it. And so when these prophecies come, oftentimes there's this prophetic foreshortening where something that is actually has a lot of depth to it is squeezed tight so that you only see the surface of it. And so when the prophecy comes through your offspring, maybe David is thinking immediately of Solomon, but within that lineage, within Solomon and beyond, there's a whole line of kings that will ultimately result in the Messiah. This is a promise in seed form. I don't want to suggest to you that there's always double meanings in everything in Scripture. I don't think that's the case, and I think we get in super danger when we do that. But I think there are times when double meanings are intended because it's a device used to get people to look at what's right before them and to see that as a down payment on the future promise, right? Even the prophecy of the Messiah in uh, Isaiah chapter 7, when it says a, a virgin will be with child, the first iteration of that is Isaiah's young wife is going to have a child, and that's going to be a sign. But it's really a prophecy even further about the coming of the Messiah, and so there's something similar that's taking place here, but the key word is offspring. And da- how is David taking this? David is taking this as a salvation message, okay? He's realizing that he's part of that same promised plan that God had given to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and now to him. That he's part of this same line that's being created, that I get to be a part of this. He, he says it, and I don't know if I can express all that's here, but... When David went, and this is the praise portion in, uh, in verse 18, and I've got two minutes, so we have to hurry. Um, then King David went in and sat before the Lord when he heard this, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? As if I were, if that were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, Sovereign Lord, is it for mere humans? This is bigger than me. And he's reflecting upon that, and I think it's starting to settle home that that promise that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with, through your seed, there will be victory. Through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How is that going to come about? What's going to happen is the seed of David is going to come and die on the cross and take the curse of sin upon himself And this is in Galatians chapter 3. And he will give to us who have failed God and are under the curse of the law the blessing of Abraham. That's what happens. Is that because he took our curse, we now stand under the favor of God. And that happens for all nations. It's not a Jewish thing anymore. I don't think it ever was an exclusively Jewish thing. We get grafted in. We're part of the people of God through him. And so... Corporate solidarity, once again, how do you get blessed? You become one with the blessed one. That's how it happens. So this is what's known as the seed promise or the offspring promise of God. It's the perpetuation of God's promise to Eve 
of hope in an offspring. And, you know, their faith was a very primitive faith, but we know the fuller details, and it begins to unfold through history. This is pointing forward to a son, which the Bible would unpack more and more through time so that we could know uh, we could know the blessing of God that comes through David. And so he praises the Lord in verse 18 through 21 uh, with humility. He ascribes holiness to the Lord in verses 22 through 24. I'm going quick here. And then he welcomes the promise in verse 25 and 26. He trusts in God for it in verse 27 through 29. And the amazing thing about this is, and it's not amazing when you think about God's uh, faithfulness, because what does his faithfulness do except keep promises? And it's still amazing. But the point that I wanted to make here is that oftentimes it looked very bleak, like the lineage of David was going to be stamped out. Um, just about 300 years later, uh, God's people would go through a time where they would have to go into exile and you may remember it looked like the line of David was going to be snuffed out. And it hung on by a thread. And um, out of the stump of Jesse, a shoot grew. And it continued, and it continues to this day. Even through a split kingdom, through an invasion, through an exile, through threats of genocide during the time of um, Esther, the promise continued. The legacy which which led David... Uh, it passes through him and on to the son of David, Jesus. And I hope that we'll use uh, or we'll see that God knows how to fulfill a promise. And time's not a factor. And his servants being alive and in this life, that's not a factor. God can fulfill his promise. The Bible says that David, he had served God's purpose in his generation. He fell asleep and he was buried with his ancestors. But God said, I'll make your name great. Revelation 22, verse 16. What's the last chapter of Revelation? 22, isn't it? And what's the last verse? I think it's about 21 or 22, isn't it? Right? We're getting close there. So this is 22, verse 16. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. He is the offspring that was promised in this passage. All right, let's stand and give thanks to the Lord. His faithfulness is good for us. One of the things that I, I wanted us to know tonight is that if God's made a promise, he's faithful to fulfill it, and he'll do it. If he's done it through generations, he can do it in our lifetime as well. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. I pray that as we think of uh, your faithfulness to David, that you honored him by being a man after your own heart. You allowed him to be part of the greatest story ever told, the story of our redemption. And I just pray, Lord, that you help us to be recipients of that and to live uh, under the blessing of God as a result of your faithful carrying out of that um, massive promise. It's bigger than building a house. It's, uh, it's building a lineage. It's building a legacy. And uh, you did that for salvation's sake. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.